favourite facts about the very first Academy Awards is that no one really knew what the Academy Awards were. Sure, awards generally were great, but there was no precedence, no history, and no real gravitas given to the awards itself, and in fact, not a lot of gravitas given yet to films generally. After all, this was 1928. The Lumiere brothers had only screened their little show of 50-second movies 33 years prior, and in those short years, the industry might have ballooned into a popular medium, sure, but there was still a fairly widespread opinion that film was a novelty that would never touch the lasting impact of the stage. The idea of the awards in the first place came from the mind of one man, Louis B. Mayer. Mayer is largely regarded as both one of the godfathers of American cinema and one of the industry's biggest Cinderella stories, an impoverished Ukrainian immigrant with little education who worked at a junkyard who became a juggernaut of a businessman, briefly the highest paid man in the world and a key player in the shaping of modern cinema. He had an uncanny ability for identifying talent and surrounding himself with it, in particular the yin to his yang, Irving Thalberg, but we'll talk more about those two in a few weeks' time. Mayer was the head of the, at the time, fledgling studio Metro-Golden-Mayer, and he'd created the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences the year before, ultimately as a way of backing studios and union disputes with actors, and in a calculated bid to start to try and control Hollywood's emerging image as a place of rampant debauchery. Throughout the early 20s, drugs, sex and divorce were making headlines, seemingly only ever disrupted by the even less savoury. Charlie Chaplin got an underage girl pregnant, Virginia Rapp died at a party at Fatty Arbuckle's house, Martha Mansfield caught on fire while shooting the Warrens of Virginia and died only days later from the burns. In other words, Hollywood was developing a reputation. In Mayer's mind, creating an academy that could pump out positive news stories with his stable of glossy stars would be a way to sanitise Hollywood in the public's eye. And what better way to start that than with an awards show? Designed to not only shine a light on their sweeter face stars, the Academy Awards was basically designed to celebrate the achievements of Hollywood staff. His brainchild came to fruition in 1929 with the very first Academy Awards, a small and almost humble event. There was no spectacle here. TV wasn't around, so it wasn't broadcast there, but it even managed to miss a cursory radio release. The ceremony was held not at one of the many theatres, studios or pavilions where it would be held for its foreseeable future, but for the first and last time at Hollywood's Roosevelt Hotel, which was only three years old at the time. It was held as a dinner party, with some 250 people in attendance on Thursday, May 16th, and the winners were selected from films released between August 1st, 1927 and August 1st, 1928. The awards were presented by Academy President, acclaimed actor Douglas Fairbanks Jr., but were hardly a surprise given the winners had been announced a week prior to the press. All in all, it was a pretty quiet affair. Notoriously, Janet Gaynor, who would accept the first ever Best Actress Award in a cardigan, would say that she was a lot more excited to meet Fairbanks himself and his wife, acclaimed actress Mary Pickford, stars of Yonder, than she was to take home her little golden man. But hey, who are we to judge a rocky start? The best things in life usually come with them, and this very first year of the Oscars was, sure, part market employed by industry bigwigs, but it also wanted to celebrate cinema, and it did a good job of it, even if it was perhaps a little more low-key than the ceremony is today. So what are we looking at? The first awards had only 12 categories, some of which still exist today, like Best Actor and Actress, although the supporting category wouldn't be introduced for another eight years. Uh, Best Original Story and Best Adapted Story, Best Cinematography and Best Art Direction. 
But it also had a few categories which are now redundant, like best title writing for the title cards used in silent films. That one, just for the record, went to Joseph W. Farnham for, as it's written, no film in particular. And best engineering effects. Uh, Perhaps most interestingly, though, is that both best picture and best director were separated into two categories each. Best director was separated into comedy versus dramatic picture. Lewis Milestone winning the former for the World War I escape comedy, Two Arabian Nights. And Frank Borzage winning the latter for the genuinely lovely romantic drama, Seventh Heaven. Best Picture was also split, not into comedy and drama, but rather into production versus artistry. The split would only exist for this first year, which I almost think is a shame. The winner of the production picture was the staggering cinematic achievement, Wings, um, at the time the most expensive movie ever made. Wings is a World War I aviation film about two men, initially hometown rivals, who are forced into camaraderie by the devastation of the war. It features Clara Bow, the world's first real movie star, as a sort of peripheral love interest, and it also features the first same-sex kiss on screen at the incredibly emotional climax, and yeah, it was platonic, but still it counts. It was also the first to show nudity, Clara's of course, a very young Gary Cooper, and one of the first films to really utilise planes and aerial shots. It's technically impressive, even now, and at the time was the sort of feat of spectacle that hadn't really been seen before. It deserved every technical award thrown its way, which is kind of where the split works, because in every other way, Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, is a superior film. Sunrise, which won Best Unique and Artistic Film, as the category was known then, is perhaps the polar opposite of Wings. It's a quiet, surreal tragedy about a farmer convinced to murder his wife by his mistress. Directed by German filmmaker F.W. Murnau, more popularly known for the 1922 film Nosferatu, Sunrise is still a masterwork of cinematic tension, empathy and darkness. Grounded in star-making performances by Georgia Bryan, Margaret Livingstone and, of course, our First Lady of the Academy Awards, Janet Gaynor, Sunrise will tear out your heart and hand it back to you with the sort of visual sensibility that is still remarkable, even in this near-century-old film. Wings and Sunrise are both such important films historically, albeit for fairly different reasons, and the ability that the split category had to acknowledge them both worked to acknowledge that film is a wide and varied medium, and something can explore the sublime in different ways. It's why I mostly think it's a shame that the controversy of the popular film Oscar in recent months has been so loudly rejected. I think there's room to celebrate the greatness of a production separately from the greatness of a story. After all, the Oscars has celebrated Lord of the Rings and it's celebrated Moonlight. Why can't we move into the future celebrating both at the same time? The other big difference of the first Academy Awards is that people could be, and many were, nominated for more than one film. So suites of work as opposed to a single performance. Remember, after all, that during these days of the studio system, people were working on or starring in 15, 20, 30 films a year. Those making short subject comedies were often in more than 100. In the case of 1929, Janet Gaynor was nominated for three films. Yes, Sunrise, but also Seventh Heaven and Street Angel, in which she played, respectively, Madonna-esque wife, a Madonna-esque almost wife, and a sex worker. Janet's wide-eyed earnestness, though, was a little bit of magic on the big screen, and at just 22, she had a presence on film that caught your eye and held it. She was a remarkable actress and offered unique performances across the three films she was nominated for. 
winning over Louise Dresser and Gloria Swanson, who perhaps unfairly were only nominated for one film each. And what about Best Actor? Well, it's a little trickier to talk about. The winner was Emil Jannings for two performances, one for his genuinely excellent and commanding, no pun intended, turn in The Last Command as a fugitive Tsarist's general who becomes a Hollywood bit player, and the other for his role as a banker turned criminal in the now lost film The Way of All Flesh. He won over just one other nominee, Richard Barthelmus, who was in turn nominated for two films as well, the quite good boxing film The Patent Leather Kid and the also quite good crime drama with a healthy dose of patricide, The Noose. Jennings was the obvious winner, and if we just talk about his performance, we can say a lot of great things. He was a formidable actor, both literally and figuratively. Heavy set and six foot tall, he took up space on camera, but as an actor he could deliver brooding intimidation like few others. The Last Command might sound silly on paper, but it's genuinely good. In no small part due to the integrity Jennings plays him with and the solid supporting performers like um, William Powell, who's one of my personal favourites, and Evelyn Brent. Unfortunately, we can't just talk about Jennings' performance. Jennings was a German actor who, when sound arrived in Hollywood that very year, would struggle to find work due to his thick German accent. He went back to Germany that same year and would become a vocal Nazi sympathiser and a key actor in many Nazi propaganda films. He became a pariah across allied countries and would never work in Hollywood again, passing away at the age of 65 just a year after the end of World War II. Of course, if you know your Oscars trivia, you know that there's another story about the first ever Best Actor Oscar, namely that Jennings was not the elected winner at all. The story goes that the real winner was Rin Tin Tin, a German shepherd who'd been rescued from a World War I battlefield by an American soldier, Lee Duncan, and become a Hollywood star for the bulk of the 20s. Rin Tin Tin starred in four films in 1927 alone, and 27 across his nine-year career. During this time, he'd be given the key to New York City by Mayor Jimmy Walker, make a fortune in dog food endorsements, signed thousands of autographs for adoring fans of his poor, um, star in his own radio show somehow, <laughs> and sire 48 puppies who would be adopted by the likes of Greta Garbo, Gene Harlow, and W.K. Kellogg. Supposedly, the Academy knew that Rin Tin Tin was the first true winner of, of their Best Actor Oscar, but ended up rendering him ineligible due to the fact that, you know, he was a dog. Before we get to the last little bit of this episode, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention The Jazz Singer. The first sound film, The Jazz Singer was nominated for only one Oscar, Best Adapted Story, which it lost to the far superior Seventh Heaven. It tells the story of Al Jolson and is remembered more for what it represented in terms of technology than it is for being a particularly good film, which, well, to be frank, it's not. Um, it's also very racist, um, employing heavy blackface for large portions of the movie, and it really is only worth the watch for the sake of completionism and history. I'll be talking about the technological advancement of sound next week, and we'll talk a bit more about the jazz singer there, but for now I'd rather stick to talking about the movies. So let's talk about them. There were only 26 movies nominated this first year of the Oscars, and a number of them aren't available anymore, tragically lost to the annals of history. But a lot of them are available, many in the public domain, which makes watching them pretty easy and, well, a lot of fun. I'm not going to tell you to watch every one of them. Hell, I'm not even going to talk about all of them. But I am going to tell you the five movies that I think you have to watch from this year at the Oscars. They're in order, so if you just want to watch one, just watch number one. But if you want to watch all of them, 
do it. It's pretty fun. And I promise I'm nominating the good ones. Occasionally I might mention ones you shouldn't watch, but on the whole, this will be the fun part. The easy listening. Hey, I'll say it. The BuzzFeed listicle. Enjoy. Number five, Wings. I've already talked a lot about Wings, but honestly, it bears repeating. It's not a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination, but it is creative, compelling, and actually a pretty fun couple of hours in front of the screen. A lot of that relies on the charisma of the performances and the genuinely exciting framing of the aerial battle sequences and very ably done cinematography, particularly during the flights over No Man's Land. It's a good film, and you might not watch every movie ever nominated like me, but watching one of the first ever Best Picture winners feels like a pretty good place to start. Number four, The Racket. Nominated for Best Picture, The Racket is a quintessential gangster movie, a cat-and-mouse game played between a cop and a gangster who are kept apart by a labyrinth of police and government corruption, self-interest, and, of course, women. It's an early mobster movie, and one you can see the threads of influence of in modern movies of its ilk, particularly in works like The Sopranos and The Departed. If you like crime, you should watch this one. Number three, Seventh Heaven. One of the three films which won her her Oscar, Janet Gaynor stars in Seventh Heaven as Diane, an impoverished girl on the run after her sister tries to kill her. She ends up rescued by Charles Farrell's Chico, a sewer worker who dreams of becoming a street cleaner. After they're mistaken for a couple by his boss, Chico gets promoted at work, and in the true romance trope of faking it until you make it, Chico and Diane decide to pretend to be married, only to fall in love in the process. Sure, it might sound a little much, but Borzage's direction never lets us get too sickly. Instead, you fall in love with Chico and Diane even faster than they fall in love with each other, and the romance builds so sweetly, so tenderly, so innocently. The film feels like something precious and something rare. A true romance. Number two, The Crowd. There have been a lot of movies over the years about isolation, loneliness and alienation, but few touch on those themes more profoundly than King Vita's The Crowd. The story of a young man who sets out from his rural town to become a somebody in New York might sound cliche, but Vita's masterful sense of storytelling is critically supported by cinematographer Henry Sharp's sublime sense of visual language. Together, The Crowd is a tragedy of the greatest proportions and one that'll stick in your mind long after the credits roll.
Sunrise, a song of two humans. Did you really think I wasn't going to say Sunrise? What can I say that I haven't already? I think this might be as close to a perfect film as you get. Jessica's project is written, researched, produced, and edited by me. It's neither authorised nor endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. My name is Sophie. Thanks for listening. Thank you.